Acts chapter 2. Our attention this morning will be on the very end of the chapter, verses 42 through 47. And if you're new to the Bible, this is a safe place to learn how to read God's Word. We were all new to the Bible at one point. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have a copy of the ESV, the English Standard Version is the version we use. You can grab a physical copy from the lobby. There are some out there. Uh, or you can just pull out your phone and type in Acts 2 ESV and follow. While you find your place. Let me get us back up to speed. We had a guest last week. What's happening in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of hundreds of years old prophetic predictions. That's what's happening right here. Fulfillment of old prophetic predictions. They all culminate in the arrival of the Holy Spirit sent by God the Father and God the Son to inaugurate the final age of human and redemptive history. That, that's all that's happening right here. Just the inauguration of the final age of human history. Acts chapter 2. Two weeks ago, Pastor Eric preached most of Acts chapter 2, about 41 verses covering both the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the Apostle Peter's Christ-centered sermon explaining the supernatural wonders that accompanied the Spirit's arrival. And we learned from Peter's sermon how to join the church. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and be baptized as a sign of your newfound faith. Now our author Luke pivots from a specific story about the coming of the Spirit in this first Christian sermon. Specific story, he pivots to a general description. What does this new Spirit-led community do? We know what they believe. They believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. But, but what do they do now that they believe that? Now this passage, if you've been around the church any length of time, is a, a famous and familiar passage. And it is often used to describe what the church could or should be. However, this passage is first and foremost about the Spirit. It's about the kind of community the Spirit creates, sustains, and leads. So we're going to see what that is, all right? Follow along as I read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, then I'll pray. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The very words of God addressed to us this morning. Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Lord, we ask you now, to bless the preaching of your word. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears 
to hear. Give us hearts ready to receive this word, which is able to save our souls and strengthen our bonds of fellowship and love. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to ask you a very dangerous question. Please don't answer out loud. What is your biggest disappointment with this church? What is your biggest disappointment with this church? We, we can be honest for a second, okay, in, in, our, in our minds. <laughs> be honest on the inside, okay? I'll just say it. Each one of us evaluates this church, okay? <laughs> We all evaluate this church, even if it's your first time here, and thank you for coming, you're already developing an impression of this church, and that's fine. That's fine. We evaluate every church. We even evaluate the American church more broadly and the global church. We have opinions about it. But we all have hopes and dreams for this church, expectations of this church, a vision of what we'd like this church to be and do. Some of those may be very noble, a vision for it to reach the community and solve the homelessness crisis, a, a desire for more personal holiness and prayer, a, a desire to make more devoted disciples. Some of our hopes and dreams may be more personal, to meet my relational and physical and spiritual needs, to entertain me. I don't think anyone here is looking for entertainment. Uh, to make me feel at home, to provide opportunities for me to lead. Now, of course, this church isn't perfect, doesn't have perfect pastors, sorry, doesn't have perfect people or perfect programs. There are legitimate areas of critique for this local church. This church won't always fulfill our vision or meet our expectations, which means we will at times be disappointed by it. And again, not automatically wrong to be disappointed with the church. The real question is, why? Why am I disappointed? Do my expectations for this church align with God's expectations? Does my evaluation match his? Is it informed by his word? Do I see this church the way God sees this church? Now this morning, I'm asking us to hit pause on our evaluations best we can. Because as we studied this part of Acts chapter 2, we might be tempted to measure our church against the church in this passage. But that would be a mistake. For Acts chapter 2 is about the Spirit of God more than the church. It's, the, it's about the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out His Spirit on His people in greater measure, and He's done it. But again, many people treat these verses like a template for building the perfect church. It's not. It's not that at all. If it were a template, it would tell us how to deal with conflict and discouragement and persecution and all the other problems that arise. But it doesn't. These last six verses in Acts 2 are a celebration of the Spirit's work in the church. Luke, our author, looks at the church first century ancient Jerusalem, he looks at the church and he sees the Spirit. 
He looks right past the faults and weaknesses and obstacles and sees the glorious work of the Spirit in the new covenant age following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's all happening according to plan. And listen, while we will see the faults in our church too, we need to take a page out of Luke's book. We need to look at the church and see the Spirit. Look at the church and see the Spirit. I want to invite you to do that this morning. Let's look together at the church in this text and see the Spirit. And as we do, we will learn how to do the same in our church. And we will be much happier Christians in a much happier church if we learn how to look at this church and see the Spirit. I have six points. Six marks of the Spirit's activity that will serve as our outline. I'll give them to you as we go. Mark number one. Mark number one, what does a spirit-led, spirit-filled church look like? Mark number one, a committed church. Committed church. Look with me again, very first phrase of verse 42. And they devoted themselves. And they devoted themselves. Everything in these six verses hangs on the word devoted. It sits on top of this whole paragraph and informs everything that follows. Each of the four practices that are mentioned right after it in verse 42 all trace back to this very first phrase. These first Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with one another, to shared meals, and to prayer. Now that word devoted means to continue doing something with intense effort. Okay? Intense effort despite the difficulties that arise. They continued to give themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to shared meals and prayers. They continued to do these things with intense effort despite the difficulties that arose. Now, this was no casual commitment. Okay, ah, we could zoom right past that word devoted and miss this. This was no casual commitment. This wasn't easy. It wasn't intuitive. It's not obvious to them. I mean, as an analogy, think of exercise, right? If you want to be a great athlete, you, you have to commit to put in the work no matter how you feel in the moment or what obstacles you face, right? That's devotion. Or marriage. You stay true to your spouse no matter how you feel or what tries to get in the way of your love for one another. That's, that's devotion. And these Christians exercised the same kind of commitment to church life. They participated no matter how hard it was or how they felt. That's what the Spirit creates in Christians. A Spirit-inspired, intense commitment to the church. And as we look to Jesus Christ in faith, bowing our knees to the crucified and risen Lord, we come under the sway of his Holy Spirit, and we find in our own hearts an intense commitment, an intense longing to be with the church. The reason you feel that isn't because you're a great person. <laughs> it's because the Spirit's powerfully at work in you, fostering that in you. Listen, if we've committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, then we will share his commitments. We will share his commitments, and, and he's committed to the church. So committed that not even, not even slander or suffering would stop him from laying down his life for us. Not even the very prospect of the wrath of God against him for sins he didn't commit would stop him. 
He endured the cross because on the other side of it, he saw a forgiven, purified, joyful church. Let nobody question Jesus' commitment to his church. He's committed. And we share his commitment. We share his commitment. Listen, doing the things that that they did here in verse 42, learning and applying the Bible, the apostles' teaching, that isn't easy. (laughs) Takes discipline, planning, sacrifice. Loving other Christians and planning your life around them and around fellowship with them isn't easy. Takes discipline, planning, sacrifice. Prayer as an individual and with other Christians isn't easy. Takes discipline, planning, sacrifice takes an intense commitment, one which the Spirit leads us into and lends us strength to continue. You all remember just uh, a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we had all current members of our church sign a new membership covenant as a church. We formally recognize and agree to make biblical commitments to one another, and that is simply the fruit of the Spirit being born out in our lives and in our church, that you gladly signed that document and signed away your house and all of your possessions to us, is a sign of the Spirit's work in your life. It's just, it's easy to underestimate how much commitment it takes to be part of the church. It's hard work. But, A huge part of what makes a healthy church is people who participate regardless of how they feel. Whether you're excited about church or tired of it or conflicted or busy or bored or distracted, we're committed. We participate anyway. And that's the foundation of everything else, our participation. One pastor and author, Adam Carius, made the following insightful observation. Listen to what he writes. Most Christians will say they want to make a difference in their church or in a ministry in which they're involved. They might wish they had more developed gifts or better skills through which they'd be able to do that. But thinking this way misses out on one of the most valuable and influential abilities we all have. The ability to be present and the ability to show up. Just by being there, he writes, just by being there, you increase your chances of making an impact and you give yourself the chance to use your gifts. And as a pastor, he writes, I can tell you that one of the most valuable actions is for a member to show up. Second that. We have the power to show up, he writes, and that is the first step to anything else. Now, I want to be very clear. I share that with you not as a corrective. You're here, not criticizing you for not being here. Quite the opposite. I just want to thank you for being here. I actually think there might be many of you here wondering if you being here is making a difference at all. And I just want to say, it is. It may not feel like it, but please don't trust your feelings. Even if you're chasing little ones around that barely have the chance to talk to or pray for others, your example of sacrificial showing up in the midst of your busy season of life brings God so much glory and speaks volumes to our hearts. Your presence here does more to encourage our faith than you realize. And showing up is the stepping stone to everything else. 
excel at being with the church. And you are well on your way to greater, deeper, lasting ministry impact. If we don't have a committed church, we can't have anything else. Thank you for being a committed church. Mark number two. A powerful church. Here we go. That sounds exciting. Mark number two, a powerful church. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Ah, oh, this is the good stuff, right? Ah. Awe means the, the reverence or fear of God. A profound respect, appreciation, and amazement directed towards God. And we see why in the second half of the verse, right? Why were they in awe? Well, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, that word through, very important. It doesn't say signs and wonders being done by the apostles. It says through them. The one doing them is God. He's the miracle worker. He's the one healing. He's the one driving out demons. He's the one, as we'll see later in Acts, making prison doors open miraculously. The Christians of Acts chapter 2 are in awe because they've been given a front row seat to the power of God. And that is the only power the church has. <laughs> okay. Oh, sure, we could try to get political or economic or social power, and many have. But that would just make us like everybody else. We don't want that power. No, the Spirit-led church experiences the very power of God Himself. The God who speaks and things come into existence. We experience that power and that, oh, that creates awe in our hearts. A God-centered fear. Now, I know the idea of fearing God is a confusing idea. I think most of us know it's there in the Bible. But what exactly does that mean? I have found a Michael Reeves definition. He's a theologian to cut through the fog. Here's how he describes the fear of God. For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. That's not what we're talking about. He writes, he is no tyrant. The fear which pleases God is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. An ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent. I mean, God is doing signs and wonders here. Likely healing people miraculously. A sign of his kindness and his magnificent power, his goodness. And when you see that, you lean on him in staggered praise and faith. We don't quake before God because we're terrified of him. We quake before him because he's so powerful and so good. And then we trust in him. We lean on him completely. Now, these feelings, I could preach about this all I want. To actually have those feelings in your heart is the work of the Spirit. 
You can't make those up. We're to have a profound respect, adoration, and appreciation of God. And that is the fruit of the work of the Spirit. R.C. Sproul famously quipped that people in awe never complain that church is boring. People in awe never complain that church is boring. Listen, we don't need to be amazed by church, okay? We need to be amazed by God. Then we'll see what he's doing in the church and be even more amazed by him. Awe will beget more awe. Now, you might be wondering, fair enough, why doesn't this church see more signs and wonders? And I told you earlier, don't evaluate us, but you're doing it anyway. (laughs) Me too. Why don't we see more signs and wonders like this? Or should we? Or was this just for the apostles in the first century church? Well, in the New Testament, signs and wonders accompany the preaching of the gospel. We saw that in Jesus' ministry. We're about to see it throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And those signs and wonders are there to prove that the gospel that's being preached is God's gospel. And these are his messengers. That's why they're there. So why don't we regularly see people get healed and delivered in our church? I can't answer that entirely. Some of it will have to chalk up to the sovereignty of God. He decides when and if he will break into our lives with supernatural power. I have to admit personally, I would like to see more miraculous healings. I would like to see people with deep and dark mental health issues delivered from them. Pray for those things. We all do. We pray for them regularly. And we should pray all the more and believe that God will do them. We shouldn't doubt when we ask. But we shouldn't take this and narrowly assume that those are the only ways God is displaying his power in the church. I mean, the highest concentration of God's power is in the gospel. Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. As we preach it, we're releasing its power into the world. The love that we have for one another, which is really what Acts chapter 2 puts on display in many and varied ways. Our love for one another is a display of the power of God. Apart from his power working in us, we would not love one another. We would go away from one another. We would scatter. You know 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is in the middle of a passage about the work of the Spirit in the church. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love among brothers and sisters in the church is the great sign of the Spirit. Oh, there's lots of it here. Let us be in awe of God's power anytime we experience genuine love, for that is the power of God. And we do need to be in awe of God. Our ministry here is a church inspired and sustained by the fear and awe of God. Listen just briefly to Paul Tripp describe the relationship between awe and ministry. Here's what he writes. When awe of God has captured your heart, 
ministry will fill your schedule. When awe of God has captured your heart, ministry will fill your schedule. You won't need the church to schedule ministry for you. You will approach work, marriage, parenting, extended family relationships, friendships, and community with a ministry mentality. So be amazed by God's power and grace here in this church and watch that amazement inspire greater fruitfulness in your life and in this church. Mark number three, moving a little faster. A united church. Mark number three, a united church. Look with me at your Bibles again, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All who believed were together and had all things in common. The next few verses fill out the sentence even more. But there are two dimensions to their unity. They were in the same places. They were together. And they shared the same mind and practices, mentality, and their practices. They had all things in common. And the next few verses are going to fill that out. They were united in every way. Heart, they were united in heart. They were united in head, they were thinking the same thoughts, and united even in how they were using their hands. Heart, head, and hands, united in every way. And again, I'm going to belabor this point. This is about the Spirit first and foremost. This is a token of the activity of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of God, as Jesus promised, leads Christians to remember and apply the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is one of his main roles in our lives to bring to remembrance all that Christ had taught. And Jesus himself prayed for our unity, that we may be one. And the Holy Spirit is bringing that unity about. He's doing it right here. And we were treated to a great message about unity last week, last Sunday, from our guest preacher, Bill Critchell. And I thank God that the Lord arranged for Acts 2, 42 through 47 to come right after that sermon. It's why this point is probably a bit shorter than it would have been otherwise. I commend Bill's sermon to you about unity. Bill exhorted us to value our unity. He reminded us that our unity is precious but fragile, difficult to build, easy to destroy. And perhaps the greatest threat to our unity is that we all come and participate in this with different expectations about what this church should be. And then we begin to fight and quarrel and pull this thing apart. That's why it's important to have moments like studying Acts 2 where we we recommit to let Acts chapter 2 and the work of the Spirit shape our vision for this church. This gets us all on the same page. It fine-tunes our expectations for this church. And listen, enjoying, celebrating, Yielding to the work of the Spirit in this church will protect our precious, yet seemingly fragile, unity. The Spirit is building a united church. The very thing humans all over the planet wish they could have. Right? Mark number four. A generous church. Mark number four, a generous church. Next verse, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings 
and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, preaching faux pas, I'm going to tell you what this verse doesn't mean. This verse has nothing to say about economics or politics, okay? It's silent on both capitalism and communism, sorry. It's simply describing what the church was doing at this moment. And actually, this verse is really here, another reminder that this church is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the new Israel. We touched on that actually in chapter 1, especially. This, the church is the new Israel, the restored Israel. Remember, at this time, Israel had fallen away. They have no political power. They're captive to the Roman Empire. And this begins to speak of the restoration of the people of God. Oftentimes, in book, prophetic books of the Old Testament, God would call Israel to remember the poor and take care of them. They were often chastised for not taking care of the poor, taking advantage of them, in fact. But these people are caring for the poor, not neglecting them, not taking advantage of them. This is who Israel was supposed to be, intended to be. And this sharing of their goods was both voluntary and occasional. It was when there was a specific opportunity. I mean, obviously, look, the, the church members didn't get rid of all their possessions. They had houses to meet in. So they didn't get rid of all of their possessions. Uh, I'd actually say it appears that they kept big savings accounts. They kept things they could sell off when a need arose. So they actually had more than they needed. And then when there was a legitimate need in the church, they would meet it. It's wise to have more than you need, not so you could sit on it, so that you can give it when there's a good opportunity for ministry. That's what these Christians were doing. They took care of the poor among them, which is something both Jesus Christ and the apostles will keep as a focal point. Apostle Paul is later going to write to the Galatian church, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, he writes, as we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You're seeing that right here. Look, Jesus Christ made himself poor to make us eternally rich with treasures that cannot perish, and it's our privilege to reflect that generosity by pouring out our lives in financial giving, sure, acts of service, hospitality. We're always on the hunt, people that are guided by the Spirit, always on the hunt for ways we can give as an act of gratitude to the great giver, Jesus. It's why we give financially on Sundays. It's why we have deacons in a benevolence fund. It's why we're going back to the House of Hope, like you heard at the beginning of the service. It's why small groups and other individuals in this church regularly and spontaneously meet financial needs that come up. Your generosity is a sign of the powerful work of the Spirit in your lives. And as we see that generosity coming out of people in the church, we should regularly thank God for it. These are the marks of the Spirit we just don't want to miss. We don't want to miss. These are the marks of the Spirit that will increase our awe and gratitude to God and convince us over and over again that He is here and these are His people and He is powerfully at work because He is. May He give us eyes to see it. Mark number five, a worshiping church. Mark number five, a worshiping church. 
We continue plodding on through the passage, verse 46, into the first half of verse 47. Look at your Bibles again. And day by day, Luke writes, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now here again, we're reminded at the beginning of verse 46 that Luke is describing a season in the life of the Jerusalem church, day by day. This is a period of time. They attended the temple together. Here they are together again, right? <laughs> together again. Oh, don't underestimate being with other Christians and the effect that that have. They're together again. Now, we don't know precisely what they were doing at the temple, Luke doesn't say, but since these are all Jewish Christians, it's likely that they were there to participate in some aspects of temple worship. It's even possible that they hadn't quite worked out what the death and resurrection of Jesus meant for how they should engage with Judaism, and so they're going there, maybe doing things they shouldn't have been doing or hadn't figured out yet. That's possible. It's also entirely possible and probable that they were there to, ev to evangelize and reason with fellow Jews that Jesus was the Christ. They were likely doing all of those things as they went. So they're in the temple. They're enjoying meals together in their homes, breaking bread in their homes. Again, together. This was another feature of their genuine love and spirit-inspired generosity. They're sharing their time with other Christians. They're sharing their homes with other Christians. They're sharing their food with other Christians. And these are all things, Sovereign Grace Church, I'm just happy to report that you excel at. You excel at these, at these very things. Now that next phrase, second half of verse 46, points us toward worship. You could say formal worship at the temple, but also spontaneous worship at home. It says, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Oh, to be a glad and generous person praising God. There you go. And having favor with all the people. Now, a sidebar on having favor with all the people, okay? This, that final phrase is another indicator. This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Favor with all people is not promised for the church. In fact, Jesus warns us that persecution and rejection will, will come to those who follow him. But in this moment, in this particular moment, the church enjoyed acceptance in Jerusalem, but don't worry, that's going to change. Just keep going on in Acts. I have heard uh, and read many who would say like, ah, oh, if we would just do Acts 2, 42 through 46, then we'd have favor with society and all people. And I'm just like, I don't, that does not compute at all. This isn't necessarily the norm, but it is happening for them, and thank God that it's happening. Now, we discussed awe and fear earlier, and that is certainly a part of our worship, the way we regard God. But here we fill out another dimension of worship. They were joyful. These were joyful, lighthearted people, glad and generous hearts praising God. Worship of God, to, to, be, to, to be captivated by the God of creation and redemption will feel like fear love, joy, all of those things perfectly mixed together in the heart. And as I mentioned, their, their worship here was both structured and spontaneous. It affected what they did when they had nothing on the schedule, 
and it even affected how they built their schedules. Oh, because how we spend our time reveals what we care about the most. These brothers and sisters were eager to be with each other and to share freely about the goodness of God. Their hearts were overflowing with worship toward God. These people don't seem boring or dissatisfying to me. Did you notice, though, that what they're doing is routine? This describes their routines, what they did over and over and over again. But they seem to love it. They seem to love their routines. My goodness, how do you get that? (laughs) You have to be gripped and guided by the Spirit. That's how you get it. Uh, Genuine gratitude and joy, satisfaction at whatever life God has assigned to you. It's proof of the Spirit's work. Because he's turned us away. He's turned us away from soul-sucking idols and instead turned us to love and worship the living God. And when we don't feel genuine gratitude and satisfaction and joy for all that we have in Christ, which is enough to satisfy you for an eternity, if we don't feel satisfaction with those things, What we need to do is seek the Spirit's help, not blame the church or blame other Christians or our parents or fill in the blank. If you're low on joy and gratitude and satisfaction, seek the help of the Spirit, for He inspires genuine worship in our hearts. He satisfies us with God. He satisfies us with His grace. And people who genuinely love and worship God are not bored people. Not at all. He'll thrill your soul. Mark number six. A growing church. A growing church. Very end of our passage, second half of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Oh, what a wonderful token of the Spirit's power and grace. Remember, the Spirit is Christ-centered. The Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. He leads people to Jesus Christ. He gives new life to believers so that they put their trust and hope in Jesus and begin to follow him, and that's what he's doing here. That's what it means to be saved. To be saved is to turn your back on sin and turn yourself towards Christ in faith. Even the way actually Luke writes this sentence is meant to draw our attention to Jesus. He begins by saying, the Lord did this, which is always shorthand for Jesus in the New Testament. The Lord did this. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved, and he did it through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. He regularly added to the Jerusalem church. Now again, This doesn't mean every church will be adding new converts to their church every day, or that if we all just did Acts 2.42 through 46, then Acts 2.47 would follow. He's describing a historical moment, and he's glossing over all the challenges that new converts bring. Look, discipling new Christians is a wonderful gift, but a great challenge. It's messy. It takes time, lots of time, patience, listening, repetition. I mean, at the end of verse 41, we were told that 3,000 people joined the church at once. And everybody loves to read that. 
as a pastor and somebody that works in church operations, it gives me nightmares. Okay, so the, the church in Jerusalem had about 120 people. We're about 120 this morning. Imagine if 3,000 more people showed up here next week. Went from 120 to 3,120 overnight. Sounds great on paper, right? Take that, church growth gurus. I mean, I can tell you, it wasn't easy. Luke glosses right over it. Again, a great sign of the Spirit's activity it is. But very taxing on the church. I remember reading one author who wrote something to the effect of when God does a big work, it costs his people a lot. And that's true. Church growth is costly, very costly, but worth it. Worth it. We should expect the church to grow numerically. Not because of our methods or our ingenuity, but because of the Spirit's power. It won't always be as steady as it is here in Acts. And there are even times when the church declines. That's normal. What's happening here is abnormal. But we will see seasons of growth. And when we do, we should look right through the growth and see the Spirit giving new life to dead souls and entrusting us with new opportunities for ministry and fellowship, new sacrifices for us to make. My friends, I hope I've convinced you that this passage is a celebration of the Spirit of God, not a template for the church. And the Spirit's work is worth celebrating. One scholar, commentator, he observed, the gift of the Spirit brought about, see, listen to his language, the gift of the Spirit brought about a community which realized the highest aspirations of human longing. Unity, peace, joy, and the praise of God. If you're part of the true church of Jesus Christ, you have found what everybody is looking for. God has made you a part of the community that is realizing the highest aspirations of human longing. He has made you for himself, and he has invested himself in the church, which is where you and I belong. Jesus Christ died not only to bring us to God, but to bring us to one another. This church, this local church, with all of its flaws, is a taste of what humanity is meant to be. And you can rest assured that the Spirit of God is doing the work of God among the people of God here. So I ask you, submit your hopes and dreams for this church to God's design for this church. Submit your hopes and dreams for this church to God's design for this church. Look at this church and see the Spirit and what he's doing here. And listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and this is all new to you, and even the talk of a spirit sounds kind of creepy, but you want to find a community of love and joy and unity and peace and worship, then repent of your sins. And trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And when you do, the Spirit will prove to be at work in you. And He will join you to the incredible community of saved sinners who have found what we're all looking for. The love of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
I want to pray for you to that end this morning and pray for our church. And then we'll join our voices and sing once again. Lord, thank you for the many tokens of the Spirit's work here in this church. There isn't paper enough in the world to write them all down or time enough to take note of each of them. You are so busy here. And I just ask that you would help us all, beginning with me, to see even more clearly the ways that you are at work here so that my love for this church grows, that my appreciation for these people grows, my commitment to give my life to this church grows. I pray that for everyone here, that they would all see the Spirit's work, and that would be a hallmark of our church. And I do pray for those who, who as of yet, have not been given new life by the Spirit. I pray that you would bring them to life now, that they would come to see Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord, the one worthy of their attention and adoration, worthy of their very lives. I'll bring that about today, that we might see another token of your work here. Now we ask this all for the good of this church, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.